Okay, let's take our Bibles out and we're going to turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. We kind of just touched on this at the beginning. Last week, it's kind of the start of the whole new section. Remember, we've moved from the, from the principles to the practical. We've moved from the doctrine to the discipline of, of what it means to uh, uh, those foundational doctrines that he's been teaching us about in the first three chapters. How do we put those to work in our lives to live a life that is worthy of the calling to which we've been called? As we begin reading in chapter 4 and verse 1 of the book of Ephesians, it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives and He gave gifts to men. In saying He ascended, what does it mean but that He also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that He might fill all things. You know, there's a lot of... uh, there's a lot of talk of unity within the news and within our within our country at at this time, and uh, some of it uh, proclaimed and some of it with skepticism. As we look at it now, we've moved, we've had this transition of power, and the other party taken over, and uh, the President Biden has had promised as he was uh, campaigning and, and heading toward this election that he would reestablish unity within our country. Although uh, some people are on the other side are very quick to point out that there's words of unity, but not a lot of action of unity. Because he speaks of a unity which would, which would tend to make you think that groups, the two different parties, are going to try to come together a little bit. And uh, if you thought that was really going to happen... <laughs> Well, there probably isn't anybody that really thought that was going to happen very much. There's a lot of disunity within our country. And I think that's why there's a lot of disunity within our leadership. But some have pointed out that the other day when he was asked on one day whether uh, about abortion, the answer was that he is a Catholic and goes to church. And then the next day he signed a bill which enhanced abortion and was a real blow against our protection of life for the unborn. They also uh, acknowledge that on the day after that, that he made a decree, or a, a decree, <laughs> a, um, what do you call them again? Executive order, another executive order that, uh, that really pushed the transgender movement. That basically said now that it's a federal issue, that now boys will be able to participate on your girls' sports team in the public schools and shower with them after, at the end of the game. And push those kinds of rights. And, and uh, so the, on the other side, they're saying, hey, wait a minute, where's the unity? There's a lot of talk of this unity that we're going to have. And then you've done some things that really are the dividing points uh, in our society. So you're speaking unity, but your actions are everything, everything but. 
And you know what? It's, it's a much more complex issue than that. I know my father-in-law and I, um, we agreed on a lot of principles, but we disagreed on some things as well. He tended to lean towards the Democratic Party. And his reasoning was that he felt that they helped people in poverty more to come out of that. I argued that point because I thought that the, the other, that the Republican Party helped by creating avenues for people to rise up out of that poverty, and I think that can be strongly argued. But I don't want to get into all that here. But we agreed on a lot of the things. We both hated abortion. He just didn't think anything could ever be done to get rid of it, so he looked at other issues and tried to ignore those issues. But, you know what? There were times when he would say, you know what? Something has to happen. There's gridlock. And I would say, gridlock's an important part of the system. Because you know what? Right now, your guy's in power, and I want him held back. Pretty soon, my guy's probably going to be in power, and you're going to want him held back. And that's kind of an important part of this system. Our forefathers set it up so there'd be checks and balances. There'd be a way to have some gridlock so that this big beast of a nation that we have moves slowly. Well... So where's the unity? You know what? There's, there's not going to be unity between life and death. Those of us that are for the protection of the life of the unborn, we're going to have to keep fighting for that. And nothing should be clearer than that than today. Those of us who believe in the way that God created the world and that you're born a man or a woman and, and those are by the decree of God and not up to your uh, personal decision, you're gonna ha- we're gonna have to keep fighting for that. Those that don't want our little girls in a men's room while a man walks in, you're gonna have to keep fighting for that. There should be no unity between those two sides. So trying to bring unity to a nation that's so divided on certain issues, I think is not gonna happen. But there's a lot of criticism. The, the unity, it seems to be, you know, Trump was accused of being a very disunifying person. And I would agree that a lot of his mannerisms lacked some in that area. But at the same time, when I look at Biden stepping in and promising unity, I don't see any measure, steps toward unity there either. It seems to be that the unity that is proclaimed is that well, now that we're in charge, there can be unity. While we weren't in charge, while you were in charge, there's no unity. But now that, you know, and that's, when you think back to it, what was, what was their stance while they weren't in charge? He's not my president. There's a lot of statements of disunity. The whole Russian collaboration hoax that went on for so long. Disunity. But now they're like, now that we're in charge, there can be unity. That's not unity. But you know what? The reason I bring that up actually has zero to do with politics. It's just a really good illustration of it because it's happening right in front of us. But the reason that I bring that up is because of actually the same issue, but within the church. You know, the church has been criticized over the years for a lack of unity. There's the Catholic church and there are Protestant churches. There's the Lutheran churches and there's Baptist churches and there's Presbyterian churches and there's Methodist churches and there's, there's, you could just go on and on and on. There's a whole host of all different kinds of churches out there. And the world a lot of times looks at that and says, well, where's the, where's the unity? If there, if there's the truth there, then where is, where is the unity? 
And the Catholic Church uses that actually as a strength or as an argument for them being the only legitimate church. They say, look, if, if it stayed with us, if it stayed with just the Catholic Church and they, they falsely claim, I don't want to get into that either, but they falsely claim that it goes all the way back to the apostles with Peter being the first pope. None of that is true. It's a Catholic Church, as far as what we look at it today, kind of started in about 300 AD, 296. And then uh, what we would look at as Catholicism today with their whole system of sacraments and all that stuff was developed over the next thousand years, slowly. And so when you look at what the Catholic Church is today, there's no way that you can say that that is the only original church. But they kind of do the same thing. They said, look, if, if they use it as an argument that if you were still part of this one big Catholic church, then we would have the unity. We wouldn't have all this division. But that obviously is not true because that led to the Protestant Reformation and the, the disunity exists even though the Catholics did have the majority of things there for a while. But the church has been ridiculed, and you know, sometimes rightly so. As you look around at the divisions and the splits within what is called the church, some of them... Uh, as I was thinking about it this week, well, some of them are just foolish. Right? Sometimes we divide over things that, quite frankly, we got no business dividing over. Sometimes we divide over. I've, I've been in, in churches where they divided over whether a woman would wear pants or not. I've been in churches that divided over whether you would sing contemporary Christian music in your worship service. Or whether a person standing up there to sing would could hold the microphone. You know, I mean, not necessarily that a whole church would divide over that issue, but but those are things that were controversial among them. In fact, I remember being at one church after I got out of college and went to the first church where I was a youth pastor, and that church had an issue of women wearing pants, and uh, we didn't personally have an issue with it. But we, we knew that the church did, but we thought, you know, we could make some sacrifices in order to be able to serve those people and teach those teenagers and stuff. And anyway, I remember talking to somebody within the church that was very big on that issue. Thought it was, you know, it was they figured you were like committing a sin, kind of like the transgender issue if a, if a woman wore pants. That's how they saw it. And I, I was trying to explain to them, I said, you know, I said, it's interesting when you look at the different churches around the country and, and stuff. I said, you know what? I've been in a church where the songs that you sing in church, they would want to separate from you because of the songs that you sing in church. They're not, they're not good enough. They're, and you guys, when you stand up and sing a special in church, which this lady did from time, often, I said, you, you stand up there and hold the, the microphone and you're not really supposed to do that. You know, it sounds breathy and fleshy and all that. You know, I said, there's churches out there that would separate from you because of that. And at the same time, their women wear pants, so you would separate from them. And I said, you know, a lot of these things are just kind of non-issues. The Bible teaches modesty, but I don't see how you really have an argument. I've heard of churches getting into big fights over colors and carpets and you know sometimes sometimes there's a real disunity that is really foolish. And at that at that point I think it's worthy to call us out on it. We should pay the price for that. But you know what? Some of the divisions also are very necessary. They're because in order to have unity, you have to actually be unified. And you have, there's a there's a unity to the truth. And so as we're studying the Word of God and we're standing for truth, that if you don't have 
an understanding of what the truth is that's the same across the board, then you really don't, you still don't have that unity. It's not a matter of just having everybody in the pews. It's a matter of everybody being on board with the same truth, the same, the same doctrines that the Bible teaches. And that, to that, the unity is never going to exist. And we'll get into that a little bit more as we go through this passage. But in this passage, and, and not only today, but all the way back at the Apostle Paul's day, you can see that there was, there was already struggles within the unity of the church. Some of them he corrected because they were inappropriate breaks in unity. Others he encouraged because if you melded those things together, it really wasn't a unity anyway. And you have to be able to stand for the truth. Well, we're going to try to get our minds around this issue of unity as it, as it pertains to the church as we walk through Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and beginning in verse 1. That's our focus is unity. Within this passage, and we're going to look mainly at just the first ten verses, within this passage we see four components of biblical unity. The Apostle Paul is calling these people to live a life worthy of the calling. They've been called to be Christians, called to faith in Christ, called to this glorious hope of the gospel. And now he's saying you need to live worthy of that calling. The first thing that he addresses is unity. Now, of course, it's, it was the last subject that he was dealing with as he left chapter 3, too, would impact that unity. He's laying the foundation for it. But nevertheless, the first thing that he addresses is the unity that they should be experiencing within the church. Now, as we look at it, the first component that we see that he points out that should help us to establish a biblical unity within the church is character. It's character. Because notice what he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. The first thing he addresses is character. You know, if you're going to be uh, somebody that's a team player, if you're going to be somebody that can be unified and have good relations with other people and cooperate well with other people, you have to have good character. You have to be a person that can be selfless, that can, that can put other needs above their own. And that's really what the idea of humility is. Humility was actually a, a negative term back in that day. It was a negative term up to that point that was looked at somebody that was low-minded, that didn't think highly of themselves, that, that considered themselves to be small, whereas other people are large. And it was really looked down as kind of a servile or servitude uh, attitude about yourself. And that's, you know what? That word kind of flopped when Christianity got going. Christianity took this word that had a negative connotation of looking down on yourself and it gave it a positive character trait. They said, you know what, that's, Jesus does flip the pyramid over. It's not about being the top of the pyramid with everybody serving you. It's about flipping it over and you being at the bottom serving everybody else. It's about seeing yourself accurately, recognizing that you're a person with faults and that you're really no better than anybody else. Not feeling that yourself is at the top looking down. But you're willing to put other people's needs above your own. You see, that's when, when you have a 
group full of people that are exercising humility, putting one another's rights and, and needs above their own, you can accomplish unity. If you have people that are always looking out for number one and taking care of number one first, then you're not going to find it. And you know, the church really needs to watch out on this because back in the day when they really started, psychology really started to focus on the self-esteem movement and everything, you're never going to find good self-esteem by trying to get good self-esteem. But you humble yourself and your self-esteem will be just fine. But the church jumped on the bandwagon and almost turned the two commands of Jesus Christ. He was asked, what's the greatest command? He says, this is the greatest command. Love Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it. He was asked for one. He gave him two. Love your neighbor as yourself. Two commands. Love God. Love others. Even some Christian writers and communicators turned that into almost three commands and said, see, you got to love others as yourself. So you've got to love self first. Only when you love self correctly, then you can really love other people. And it actually lifts you back up over the other people. Jesus said it was exactly the opposite. You love God. You love others. You already love yourself. That's why you complain when things don't go the way you want them to. And that's why you hope to better things in your life. And that's why you, you, already, you just innately love yourself. And he's not promoting self-love. He's saying, look, you already do that. Put somebody else above you. And that's the thing. As we exercise humility, if we have that kind of character, then we can experience that kind of unity. Because we can come together if we're all busy putting one another first. You know, that's what typically, in a nutshell, it gets more complex, but in a nutshell, family and marriage counseling ends up back at that principle. It's about loving one another. And if you stop focusing on whether or not that person is loving you like you think they should and focus on whether you're loving that person the way that you should be, that will turn around your life. That will turn around your marriage. It will turn around your family. But as long as one is saying, you know what, you're not doing for me what you should be doing, and the other one saying, yeah, but you're not doing what for me what you should be doing, then that's a real formula for disunity. And that's what he's, he's saying here. He says, look, as you're going to strive for unity, you're going to live worthy of the calling you've been called for, then these things need to be in your life. Character traits, hum, humility, kindness, gentleness. These traits need to be in your life. He talks about peace. And of course, the, the main one that kind of includes them all is love. You've got to have a love for other people. And you know, that's what I often say. I'm interested in politics because it rubs people's life, because it impacts life. I hate politics because of the way in which it is done. Because it's so divisive and backbiting. And people take something somebody said out of context to fit their own thing, and they knowingly do it, and they do it on purpose, and they they get dishonest in all kinds of different ways. I hate the way in which politics happens. But politics itself is incredibly important because it lays down the foundational laws for our society with which we treat one another and how we're protected. You realize that in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, when he'd write to Timothy and he'd say, Timothy, you're going to have people that are opposing you. You're going to have false teachers. You're going to have all these people that you've got to deal with that are opposing you, that are opposing even themselves. If you look into it, he says you need to treat them with gentleness. 
He was supposed to rebuke them. He was supposed to tell them where, where they were wrong. He was supposed to stand up with the truth. But he said he was supposed to do it with gentleness. You know, I remember when I was in college, I had a class called Persuasive Writing. And one of the assignments for the class was to uh, answer a letter to the editor. You had to find a letter to the editor that was written in our local newspaper down in Oatana, And you had to answer... Uh, somebody else's opinion, arguing with them, and send that in and get it published by the newspaper. Well, a guy wrote in his opinion about what the Bible was, and he was wrong. Um, not just my opinion, wrong. Biblically, he's wrong. And you know what? It, I answered his argument. I, I stepped up and I showed quotes from within Scripture itself that says this is not what what Scripture means when it talks about Scripture. This is how the Word of God is to be perceived, and this is how it is. And I have lots of proof texts and evidence and that kind of stuff. And one of the things that we were taught in class is you got to make a point. you got to have a punch to it. And so I had a punch in there too, here and there. And there was a point in his thing where he said, look, I'm no expert. Well, you know what? That became my closing line. The one thing that he did say in his article that does ring too is the fact that he is not an expert. And I put it in the, and I sent it into the paper. And my professor read it in the class. It was a great article. Hit the major points. Had evidence, proof, supporting what you were saying. Won the argument. You're right. Felt horrible. The person sitting next to me in the class was also a married student. And she said, you know what, I know him. Uh, she was a big into music, played piano and stuff like that. And I think there was a connection to them through that. She took lessons with him or something or gave lessons to him. And she said, uh, she told me what his reaction was of my reaction to his letter. And I felt horrible. And I thought, you know what? I won the argument. I didn't win him, though. And I'm not just supposed to win an argument. I'm supposed to win him can't do that through that kind of abuse. Gentle. I should have brought up all the same points, but done it in a different mannerism. Right? I had a professor that used to say, look, if it's your, if it's your position that offends people, you can't do anything about that. That is the biblical position. But it should not be your disposition that is offensive. You can disagree with people in a kind way, in a gentle way. That's what this passage is saying. Saying if you're going to have unity, you're going to have to be humble, gentle. You have to seek peace. You're going to have to, in love, forbear. The word forbear means to hold one another up. It means, I, I love it. It just kind of means putting up with one another. And you know what? There's, fact, there's times when you're going to have to put up with me. <laughs> Probably more of them than I would like to acknowledge. And there's times where I have to put up with you. We're just fallen people. And we need to bear one another up in those times, not tear one another down. It's too easy to tear one another down. That's always the easiest route. Sometimes it's a more exciting route too, but it's also the wrong route. Well, you know what? In, in Galatians chapter 5, he's telling the the believers there to... Walk in the Spirit. And he, and he recognizes there's two different paths. There's a path of the flesh. 
and there's a path of the Spirit. And he's telling them to submit to the Spirit and let the Spirit do its work in your life, in your heart, so that you have these character traits. But first he starts off with the negative ones, with the flesh. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned before, that those who do such things are, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so he says, look what you have in your flesh. And the fleshly things that wants to put self first and, and act out in these ways. And he says, you're not part of the kingdom of God if this describes your heart and your, your life. But then he turns in Galatians in uh, chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit... So we had the works of the flesh, which are ugly. The fruit of the Spirit, which is beautiful, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. He says that's what you need. You need the fruit of the Spirit bearing itself out in your life. As we walk in the Spirit and we and we, we walk with Christ in faithfulness, then the traits of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit will show forth in our life. And that promotes this love and humility and kindness and gentleness and, and this peacefulness that we can experience. We need to not walk in the flesh where we seek our own, look out for number one and seek our own way, our own path, our own good to the detriment of others. We need to be where we are putting others above ourselves. So the first component of biblical unity is character. Without strong character, without being people of this kind of character, there's no way to accomplish unity. The second component of biblical unity is desire. We've got to want it. It says in the very next phrase, it says in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain... The unity of spirit in the bond of peace. We gotta be eager to maintain. You know what that's speaking of? De- desire that we want unity. That this is something that we want to have, that we want to pursue, that we want to take place. And it also implies that there's effort to it, that there's, that there's work because we, we have to maintain it. You know, maintenance, I don't really like maintenance very much. It's not very fun. It's kind of like when I think of, when I think of my work, when I gotta buy a, a tool, let's say I have a drill that breaks, and so now I have to go buy a new drill. That is not fun at all. You wanna know why? Because I already had a drill. There's nothing new and exciting about it. It's exactly the same thing the other one was. It's just newer. It's not wore out yet. And so buying this new drill is not exciting at all. It's just a cost. That's all it is. Now, it's a cost I have to make because it'll pay for itself many times over as I use it. But it's just buying something new, a tool I don't have. Now, that's more exciting. That's more fun. You know, in my house, there's projects that are left unfinished. Lisa can point them out to you. She knows where every one of them are. Because, and you know why? Starting a new project. Now that's kind of fun. Let's tear that out. Let's move something. But by the time you get to the end, the glamour has worn off. And it's kind of, 
Now it's just work to get it done. And so there's just a little something left. Maybe it's like the Winchester Mansion. You know that lady that had the house built, thought if it ever gets done, she'll die? Maybe that's it. But no, I don't know. But, but at any rate, there's nothing. It's not as exciting. It's not as glamorous. It's not as, as, a, as starting a new project, doing, doing something new. And so those things tend to, you know, the same principle if it will happen to relationships if you're not careful. There's been many, many marriages that have been destroyed because this new exciting relationship seems that more exciting than the maintenance to make my existing relationship be what it could be. I remember I had somebody tell me one at a time how, how they found just the right person. I'm like, man, you're married. You have kids. You already found the right person. And they said, yeah, but they got involved in an affair somewhere. You're living in a hotel and that kind of stuff. You know what I told them? I said, of course it was, of course it was exciting. Of course it, it feels like, wow, this is just amazingly whatever. I said, you know what? You're not even doing your own laundry while you're in a hotel. You're not even making your own food. There's, there's absolutely, it's, it's a, a day void or a time void of any responsibility. I said, you're claiming that that person is your new, is this new connection to you. She hasn't even had to pick up your dirty clothes off the floor once. Your wife's been faithfully doing it for years. But you know what? All they could see is the excitement of this new relationship. It was wrong. Should have put some effort into the other relationship. Would have been even more exciting. Because it would have been right. But you see, that's what he's saying. He's saying we've got to have the desire. So many times we take the wrong path because we get past the point where we just don't even have the desire to go down the right path anymore. I'm going to go down this one here. It looks easier. It looks more fun. It looks more... The Apostle Paul is telling that church, look, you have to maintain the desire. You need to continue to be eager to seek Peace within this church. You need to be eager to maintain that unity that you should have on the foundation of the gospel in that church. There needs to be a desire. Well, it's kind of like my dad. You know, my dad, when he coached us in sports and stuff, he would often recognize that you know why you're not doing that well at what I'm trying to get you to do as he was coaching us? Is he says you lack the desire. That's what's missing. He would point out you have the ability. You just and the statement that he would always make is he says, You gotta want it. You gotta want it. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is telling the Ephesians here as he's promoting this unity within their body. He says, Look, you gotta want it. You have to be eager to maintain that unity. So part of it is just our attitude. You know, it's easy to get grumbly and kind of grumble about this and complain about that and this isn't this way and it should be that way. And That's the easy road. What does it take to make it one? What does it take to maintain the unity? That's where we've got to keep our desire. Those other things uh, will do nothing but tear it down. Now, this unity also, the next thing that we see that needs to be uh, in this unity is kind of the concept of unity itself. Uh, just to use a different word, I'm going to put sameness. You could use the word oneness. 
But this is where he lays out the foundation for the unity that the church should be experiencing. He says uh, over and over, he talks about bearing with one another. So there's an idea of one another, you know, being uh, putting each other, being as one body kind of. In love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, referring to the church as the body of Christ, and one Spirit. And this kind of breaks down along, uh, you can kind of see how it kind of breaks down along the Trinity. He deals with three sets of three things. There are three issues, and he kind of deals with the Spirit first, and then the Son, referred to as the Lord, and then God the Father, as referred to as God. He says, uh, maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You see, he lays out the foundation. He says the church should be at one. And the reason it should be at one is because there is one God. There is one Lord. There is, there is one hope to our calling. There's one Spirit. There's one baptism. There's, there's a oneness here. There's a oneness within God. And as the church is a reflection of God, then there should be, there should be a oneness within us. But that's exactly where we begin to run into uh, the problem of the disunity that also, well, let me, let me put it this way. In order to be unified, there has to be the sameness. Like it's, it's like what I talked about earlier. When we look at our politics, those of us who are in favor of protecting life in the life of the unborn, and those who want free and all access free abortions for everybody that wants one, we are not going to be one on that issue. Now, hopefully, just as just as in the last years, pro-life movement has gained about 10% more of the population because, as we can see in ultrasounds and stuff like that, it's not just it's not just a flesh or or a, like they used to tell us. You can tell that's a baby in there. And as we learn more and more about it, and technology helps that way, helps other people to be able to see pro-life as gaining ground. And I hope we'll continue to gain ground and put an end to this atrocity, this holocaust of abortion. But you know what? The fact of the matter is, is the people that want to continue the holocaust of abortion and those of us who are not going to want to end it are not going to see it the same. There's not a sameness there. There's not a unity there. And the same is true within the church. If you have parts of the church that are holding up one thing that's true and parts of the church holding up something else entirely different is true, there's not a oneness anymore. There's not a sameness. And it's nothing new. The Apostle Paul, Peter, John, James, those guys dealt with it. They dealt with false teachers that popped up within the church and needed to be kicked out of the church. They dealt with, with other people within the church that entered into areas of immorality within their life and needed to be kicked out of the church. And in those instances, the Apostle Paul did not say keep them in, make them one, compromise and find a place of unity. He said the unity has to be in the truth. One of the ways that we find, or one of the areas that we find that unity that truth needs to be maintained in is the area of morality. If the church allows immorality to come into the church and we just try to gloss it over in order to be one, 
then we've lost the unity anyway. That is not biblical unity. And you know what? That's exactly what they were doing in Corinth. In Corinth, when, when the Apostle Paul writes the first letter to the Corinthians, that's what they were doing. There were people in the church that were sexually immoral. He said to a level that even the pagans aren't going. And he says the church was actually proud. They were proud that they had enough grace to accept within their membership and within their church sinful activities or people that were doing sinful activities and just figured that was showed the immensity of their graciousness. And the Apostle Paul said, you've got this completely wrong. First Corinthians chapter five, he says it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. You see, the Apostle Paul isn't saying, look, you need to unify this guy in with you. You do need to... He says, no. He says, you know what you got to do? You need to, to correct this person. And if need be, kick him out. And you know what happens? If you read 2 Corinthians, what happened is they kicked him out. Because he got kicked out, he recognized his sinfulness. He repented and he came back. And then he tells him, now welcome him back in. And you know what you just saw happen? Unity. If they would have tried to tolerate that sinfulness with inside the church, it's not really unity because you've lost the sameness. You've lost the oneness, even though you're all there. But you kick that guy out and then he, and then you maintain the unity in the church even though he's not there. But he repents and comes back, which is what you're hoping for. He repents and comes back. Now you still have the unity of the truth and the unity of the church. Well, then, then he goes on to say, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and in truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. In other words, they're a Christian. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler, not even to eat with such a one for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church, church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And so you see, he tells them, look, you got to, you got to, in order to maintain unity, you got to kick them out. Other words, that unrighteousness is going to spread like yeast in bread dough within the church. And he says, biblical unity. There has to be a oneness to it. There has to be a unity 
of the truth. And one of the areas is in this area of morality. We have to be one morally. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he goes on to tell them uh, more of the same. Or do you not know that unrighteousness, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. With such were some of you. I love that. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He says, look, in the church you're going to have people, you're going to have all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of sinfulness that people have participated in. But salvation makes the difference in your life. You repented of those things and you came to faith in Christ. He says, look, if you're still living in all those things, you're not part of the kingdom of God. He says, but such were some of you. You know, that's one of the struggles in our day and age, because in our day and age you have part of what is looked at as the church out there endorsing things like homosexuality. And there's even a call for unity in, amongst the churches that do and don't. There's a call for unity in the sense that they say, you know what, this isn't a gospel issue. This isn't a doctrinal issue. It absolutely is. Homosexuality is one of the sins listed inside this passage that says, if you are living in this, you are not part of the kingdom of God. Which means you are not unified in the church. And so if the church is going to start tolerating things like sex outside of marriage and adultery and homosexuality and uh, or greed or some of these uh, malice, these other things that are listed, then we are missing the boat. It doesn't matter how much of a group we think we are. We do not have biblical unity if we're going to let it become corrupted by the immorality that is in the world. But then there's also a doctrinal side. There are doctrines. There's things that we believe that if you don't believe them, if you don't believe them, you're not really part of the church. The Apostle Paul addressed that also in 2 Corinthians, which is a book that is primarily dealing with false teachers. There were false apostles that were raising themselves up against him uh, and the other apostles, and he's combating that false teaching. And this is what he says. He says, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, but I'm afraid as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Now notice he's... he's rebuking these Corinthian believers, and he's saying, look, people have come to you, and notice they're, it's bearing all the same names. It's all the same titles. They're still using the name Jesus. The Apostle Paul says, but it's another Jesus. Why? Because they don't identify who He is scripturally. So they're still coming to you with a, with a gospel. They're calling it the gospel. But if you look at what it is, it's another gospel. And so it's not about just naming the name of Jesus or talking about the gospel. It is about what understanding what the gospel is. It's, a, it's about understanding who Jesus is and what He did. 
We're not unified, for example, with the, with the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses because they don't see Jesus Christ as God. They're not recognizing who He is. We don't agree with, we're not unified with Catholicism. Why? Because Catholicism has a completely different understanding of the Gospel that was added to Scripture over the years. In Catholicism, the Gospel is that you go to the church to receive salvation. The church kind of has a hand on the throttle. It comes through Jesus Christ, but they, my son Daniel mentioned, he used that to describe something different. I thought, last night when I was talking to him, I said, you know, that's exactly the uh, clear understanding of what Catholic theology is. Catholic theology is salvation comes through Jesus Christ, but you've got to come to the church to get Jesus Christ. And so they have this whole system of sacraments that you have to go through. You have to go through these sacraments and it has to be at the Catholic Church with the, with the priest because they look at it, their priesthoods are the only legitimate priesthood. And what happens is this. You need to be saved. Christ wiped your slate clean. But now you need righteousness. And so their gospel is that how you get the grace of God into your life and His, and His righteousness is you come to the church and you go through these sacraments. And they administer these sacraments to you, and the sacraments are like a pipeline for grace. That's how the grace of God comes to you. So, if you don't have them, you don't have the grace of God. And so, you go through this, this grace is like a pipeline. Now, where does the pipeline come from? Well, the pipeline comes from the treasury. There's a treasury of righteousness. And the treasury of righteousness is the righteousness of Christ, but it's also the righteousness of other people. You see, the way they look at it is by doing good works and, and going through these sacraments, you merit righteousness. You earn righteousness. Now, you need a certain amount of righteousness in order to get to heaven. But you're probably not going to make it. But Mary undoubtedly did more than she needed to do to get there. The saints did more than they needed to do to get there. And other people that have, have, done, have been able to make it and go beyond. So whatever, whatever righteous deeds they did that were above and beyond what they needed go into this treasury of righteousness. And so when you go to the Catholic Church and you participate in the sacraments, you get to tap into a little bit of their righteousness. And so if you look at the theology of the Catholic Church, and, and I'm simplifying it some, you have to have the merit of Christ that takes away your original sin. You have to merit your own salvation through your own good actions and going through the sacraments. And you're tapping into the use of other people's good deeds through the treasury as you tap into that. And in the end, you're probably still going to only make it to purgatory because you still don't quite, you still haven't quite made it. And so you're going to have to go to purgatory where you will suffer until you finally reach that level. And when you finally reach that level, then you can be escorted into heaven. That is a very different gospel. In the New Testament, the gospel of the apostles is that just because of the grace of God and His free gift to you, which you receive by faith, you have the righteousness of Christ. You see, they're both going to call it the gospel. We're going to call it the gospel. They're going to call it the gospel. They're two very different gospels. The Us and the Jehovah's Witnesses, we're both going to talk about Jesus, but they're two very different Jesuses. 
It's nothing new. The Apostle Paul was dealing with it even in his time as he dealt with it with the Corinthians. He also dealt with it with the Galatians. The Galatians in chapter 1, he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You see, the Apostle Paul says there are, there are some different gospels out there and they are not the gospel. He says anything that veers from the gospel, the death and the resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, is to be accursed. It's not to be held in unity. We're not big enough to accept that or tolerate that within. It needs to be set aside. It needs to be recognized as accursed. You know, in 2 Corinthians 11, back, this deals with the passage we looked at just a moment ago. He says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will be will correspond to their deeds. You know, uh, well, there's another passage, but we don't, really don't have time to, to look at it in Second Corinthians and, cha- and chapter six. So I think we'll we'll pass on that one for the moment. The, the the Apostle Paul there is basically saying, "Look, we've opened up our hearts wide to you, but you're closing us down." And the reason they're closing them down is because they were buying into the false teaching. They were buying into the false teaching and following these false apostles, going with another Jesus, going toward a different gospel. And the Apostle Paul is like, he says, look, we, you've united yourself with unbelievers. You've been unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so you're following a wrong path. You need to turn and come back. You know, the same thing that was happening in the Apostle Paul's day is happening within our day. And the message is the same. In order to maintain the unity of the true church, you have to have a sameness. You have to have a oneness in the things that you do and the things that you believe. And so, and I know it's difficult. It's difficult to, to leave a place. But I've, I've consulted people at times that, you know what, you need to, there's times where you just need to get out. You need to separate. You know, I remember talking to people that, that their church was part of a conference that was going toward the, the way of promoting homosexuality and that kind of stuff. I said, look at, look at what the Bible says. If you're living in this lifestyle, you are not part of the kingdom of heaven. I said, if your church is really part of a group that's going that way, your church needs to get out of that group. Because that's not biblical unity. In order to maintain biblical unity, they actually need to separate there. Same thing with individuals with inside a church. If a church gets to the point where it's endorsing things that God is clearly against within His Word, it's time to leave. And that can be a tough decision. Because you're talking about leaving people that are family and friends that you've been around for a long time. You're talking about leaving a place that you've invested in. You're talking about leaving, leaving a place where you have, where you have uh, seen your babies brought in in your family and you've buried your dead in, amongst that congregation and you've participated and celebrated each other's weddings. And... It's a tough, it's a hard road. But you know what? Sometimes it just comes to the point where you've got to decide, am I going to continue to be loyal to something that is going the wrong direction or am I going to be loyal to God? 
You see, unity has to be exactly that. It has to be unity. There has to be a sameness. Tolerance is too cheap. We're called to love. Well, the last thing that we see is that even within this unity, the other part of biblical unity is a diversity. Now, obviously, it's a little different diversity than the world's talking about. It's not a diversity in sexual preferences. It's not a diversity in in major doctrines. It's not that kind of diversity. That's where we got to be one. But within that, there's going to be a diversity of giftedness. And that's the area that he goes into next. And we're going to focus on that primarily next week. But let's just touch it a little bit this morning. He's going to go in and he's going to say in verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Then he's going to quote a passage from the Old Testament. And he's going to say, look, Christ came down to the earth and and then rose back up and he gave us gifts. Gifts that we are to use within the church. Not everybody has the same giftedness. Not everybody has the same interests. And that's where we get to be diverse. And if we're the same, same way within the Bible, if we don't recognize the oneness, we lose biblical unity. Well, at the same time, if we don't recognize that there's, in some aspects, there's a diversity that has to be acknowledged too. You know, the Apostle Paul in other places would say, look, we're not all teachers. We're not all apostles. We're not, we don't all, even back during the time of the more outstanding gifts, uh, or foundational gifts, we don't all have the gift of healing. We don't ha- all have the gift of prophecy. We all, we don't all, we don't all have the same gifts. And that's what within the church, within the church and within the one, the unity that is a moral unity and a doctrinal unity, we have a diversity of interests and gifts that are among those people. And you know what? A lot of times people will say, I don't know what my gift is. You're probably already using it. Your gift just will just come out naturally. You know, when, when somebody comes to me and, and, they, and they say, look, here's something on dealing with the church and it might be dealing with you know, people or building or whatever and, they, and they're concerned about this one avenue. I th- you know what I think? I think, you know what, that's probably an indication of where their giftedness is in. When they came up and they say, don't you think something should be like this? The reason that that stands out to them and not to this person is because that's where their gift lies. And so that is probably the best person to have do that thing of whatever it is that they're talking about. Be involved in that ministry. I'm longing for one of you to say, you know what, our music ministry is not really what it should be. Because I'm going to say, good, you can lead it. Because I, <laughs> it's not my giftedness. I do it, I do it because somebody's got to do it. But I don't doubt that there's somebody in here that will be much better at it than me, and I'm totally ready to let you do it. Right? But it's that person that says, you know what, that's not what it should be, that probably has that gift to do it. And there's a lot of other things. If you're looking at it and saying, boy, this isn't what it should be, you know what, it's probably because there's somebody doing it that doesn't, isn't necessarily gifted. They just know it has to be done. Maybe you're just the person to do that. And you know what the thing is? is it's not my gift. I totally appreciate it in a person that has that gift. I don't have to have the same gift to love what they lo- to to love watching them do what they love to do to appreciate where they're at. And that's the point that the Bible makes in other places is look when the when the eyes or the or the or the the ears look down on the toe they're out of line. 
they're missing the point. I like, I remember uh, I was reading, I don't even remember where I read it, but I read years ago a statement where they were talking about about this kind of thing, different parts of a community and everybody doing their part. And this guy made a statement. He said, when a, when a society or a culture gets to where they value their philosophers and despise their plumbers, then neither their philosophies nor their pipes will hold water. <laughs> I love that. Because it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what your gift is. That is where you're supposed to function. And that's what God wanted you to do. And they're not things, they're not what we pick. It's what God puts within us. And that's where we get to exercise diversity. So we need unity to live up to Christ, to the calling that we have been given in Christ. We need unity. Biblical unity has those four components. It's going to have character. The ability to humble ourselves before other people and be gentle and kind and peaceable. It's, it's going to include desire. You've got to want unity to accomplish unity. Backbiting and that stuff, that flesh is way too easy to give into. It's going to involve sameness. We've got to be on the same page with what God tells us within His Word is true and false and right and wrong. We're not the decision makers on there. We're the followers. He's the one that revealed it to us. And then lastly, within that unity, there's a diversity. We're not going to have the same gifts, but we can admire each other's gifts as we function together as the body of Christ.